A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. Come into the reading room, all you lovers of language and literature. This is the place for those of us who believe that reading is essential as we seek to rise above the ordinary. And the reading room contains a host of extraordinary people, leading lights of the written word. Authors, literary critics, columnists and ideas people will tantalize your minds with their wordplay while discussing the ideas and worldviews that form our wonderful literary milieu. Come step into a world of magic, the place of undiscovered treasures, a room of reading. And a very warm welcome back into the reading room, the place where you can find out about books, about the written word, the spoken word, and of course, all the people who come up with all of these amazing ideas. One of the people who I know through writing blogs for sapeople.com, and that's where we first actually got in touch with each other, is Ted Werther. And then I found out a little bit further down the line that he is actually... More than just a blogger, he writes all kinds of things. So I've asked him to come into the room to join us and to tell us a little bit more about what he does, what he's written, and how it's all going. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Okay, so tell me, what is your background? Where did you start off with everything and why writing specifically for you? Gosh, I feel as though I've been writing forever, like anybody who's written an English essay at school. But when did I start to think about writing you know, I studied, uh, I did a postgrad in journalism at Thalenbosch, uh, which kind of led me to become uh, a journalist. I mean, I could have gone straight into newspapers. But anyway, long story short, I did a trip through Africa in the late 80s, and um, it was just trying to discover Africa. And when I came back home afterwards, it was about eight months later, I just thought, I need to write a book about that. And um, mm-hmm. I don't know, going from writing an article for a newspaper or a magazine into writing a book is a completely different thing. I don't know. It's like running around the block versus running a marathon. You know, why do you actually decide you want to do the next thing? And uh, it came not too hard. So I just kept on doing that. And um, over the years, I've, I haven't really stayed with one particular genre. Um, the book that I wrote at the time was called Apartheid in My Rucksack. And it was basically um, the book I've got it here. It says uh, the compelling account of a young South African abroad. And basically it was me as a white South African trying to come to grips with being, trying to see my continent, Africa. Um, but it was at a time before 1994 when it was difficult to get into these countries. And no matter how hard I tried, another passport, I kept coming back to my surname, Boerta, which everyone knew in Africa, and I was unmasked wherever I went, and I was a South African, a terrible South African. So rather than... But you were born in New York, weren't you? I was, which is how I got a second passport to do the traveling. But, you know, in Africa, the name Boerta at the time was very uh, infamous, and it's like traveling around Europe as with the surname Hitler in 1946, everyone would know exactly who you are and where you came from. And yeah, it was the voyage of discovery, really, of discovery of myself and um, a little bit of, of Africa and the Africa that I saw. 
And I kind of, I did a lot of travel journalism afterwards, but I, I never wrote another travel book. Um, I kind of veered mm. off into other directions. So, um, okay, so, but you've written for a lot of newspapers, not just in well, South Africa or online, but also overseas. Yeah, so I wrote for a lot for South African publications, um, and then I started branching out into English, uh, into Britain, and then into America. And so in the late 90s, I moved to New York and started working for publications there, newspapers, magazines, um, mostly as a freelancer. Mm. And at the same time, I actually went to New York to try and get a book published, which was how I, I mean, I'd already had one published in South Africa, which was supported in my rucksack. But then I went to New York and my ambition to go to New York was really to work for publications there and to get a book published there. And mm. uh, after a couple of years, I came across the story that I thought was a great book, which was my second book, which was uh, Mongo, Adventures in Trash, which was basically about people who gather on the sidewalks what other people have thrown away. So, I mean, you see it in South Africa, you see it all over the world where your garbage is somebody else's valuable and uh, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Uh, but in New York, it's kind of the ultimate because it's this very high-end society with nowhere to throw their stuff. And so they just put it on the sidewalk and it's furniture and everything. And I started collecting stuff off the sidewalk that I swore that one day when I got my own flat in New York, I would furnish my own flat from what I gathered off the street. And I did it. And then I thought, well, this is really a story. So I used to mm. go out late at night on my bicycle and I used to find other people who were collecting and they, they usually work in the, the small hours of the mornings. And I uh, found about 12 different people or 12 people gathering different things. Finding them alone was a very, very difficult thing because they tend to be people on the outside of society, don't like to mix very much, don't like to talk, um, feel quite threatened when you come up to them. So I had to kind of cajole them. And yeah, anyway, um, I found these 12 people. So they gathered things like furniture. One collected jewelry. The other one connected uh, computers that she fixed up. The other one collected paintings, the other collected plants. One guy, the, probably the most interesting guy, collected books and ma old manuscripts. Mm. And um, he sold them at auctions. And I mean, he got some fantastic, some fantastic stuff. I mean, he even found amongst a piece, a, a block of papers that had been thrown out, an old Toulouse-Lautrec um, etching. So, I mean, for anybody who doesn't know, Toulouse-Lautrec was a, a French artist back in, yeah. the, back in the 19th century. And uh, he got, I think he got about $10,000 on auction for this etching, you know. And I mean, the weird thing is that he found it. And the weird thing is that somebody actually threw that out, whether it was by mistake or whatever. Yeah, so that was my second book. And um, um, yeah, so it was very different from the first one. So I, I kind of hop and change between genres. And the next two were also very, very different. And then you also did, yeah, you did one uh, with Jenny Baxter from SA People. And yeah, this is where I found out about you and all your books when I was talking to you about that. Yeah, so when we were, um, we started communicating when she was living in Australia and I was a South African in New York and we, I wanted a website designed and I wanted a South African to do it. And, you know, I found this 
couple in Australia who were making websites. And so we started chatting online and we discovered we had very similar reactions to being South Africans abroad. You know, how, how did we fit in? How didn't we fit in? You know, the questions that people, immigrants throughout the world ask themselves all the time, like, why was this a smart decision? What didn't I factor into it? You know, why are my kids like acting strange? All these things. And um, then she said to me, you should write a book about this. So then I said, but you should mm. write a book about it. So then we landed up writing a book together about it without ever actually meeting each other. So we used to bat each other the questions and answers on uh, email. And uh, that was how the book got written, which was The Expat Confessions. The Expat Confessions. Yes. I like that a lot. I think that uh, there's uh, many of us who at some stage or another may have been an expat. And, and, but there wasn't the – a lot of us who are older, there wasn't the – internet we couldn't go online and find out information so those kind of books would have been really helpful for south africans traveling abroad in the dark days <laughs> i think it's <laughs> true. Like to say. even today i mean even with the internet you know it's now what uh, 17 years about or 18 mm. years you, you notice some of the same questions are still coming up and uh, uh, you know if we had to put that book on the internet i think it would still be answering exactly the same questions with the correct answers. Mm. So we need to do an update on that on the internet then. Okay. Yeah. So you said there's two books. What is the other book? Well, uh, the third book was, uh, was kind of um, was something uh, I, I was, it was suggested to me because my agent in New York had a client who was a forensic sculptor. He was quite well known in America and he was basically in the early days of forensics, like programs like CSI and the X-Files. And, and this guy was a forensic sculptor, which is basically somebody who's given the skull of uh, somebody who's died unnaturally. So they know that this person mm. has died unnaturally, but they don't know who it is because the body is already decomposed so much. Okay, so like they used to do on bones with rebuilding the face. Angela in Bones used to do yes. this. Yes, okay. So um, so he was before he was before her and he would create a bust of this mm. skull and his thing was he had a kind of an, a sixth sense about who this person was. And so he would sometimes give characteristics to a skull which or to a bust which really you couldn't tell from a skull because a skull is very is very um, you can only tell certain things from the skull. I mean, like your, your nose is not there when the skull, you know, the cartilage mm. disintegrates. And so there's certain things that don't, you know, if you had to see like a wall of skulls and there's a museum in Philadelphia which has a wall of skulls, you can see how different everyone's skull is when all the skin and everything is off of it. So, but he had a particular talent to give characteristics to a skull when, uh, to a face when he created it. And he had quite a few um, successes, and then he was used to track down fugitives as well. So people that had committed crimes but had then disappeared. So there were some from the mafia. There was a famous man called John List who had murdered his wife and his mother and his children and then disappeared. Um, there was a Hell's Angel guy called Robert Naus who had killed a couple of people that he did a uh, so they do a post like an age an age progression bust of how somebody would look mm. in thirty years time, and so they found a couple of these as well. 
Um, so basically, it was a, a story about him and how he was got he got involved in trying to solve a whole lot of murders that were going on in Mexico at the time, where a lot of young women were being murdered and their bodies left out in the desert and they were decomposed so much that nobody could tell who they were. So they thought there was a, a serial killer or several serial killers at play. And um, they took him down to Mexico to try and figure out what was going on. So the name of the book is The Girl with the Crooked Nose because one of the busts that he did down in Mexico was a girl who had a crooked nose. Mm. Very diverse material that you've got going on here. And I mean, a lot of it you can actually see if you have just been like uh, perusing your, your website, tedwater.com. And the things that you write about, I mean, cross country on the light blue train. Mm-hmm. Was that here in South Africa? Yeah, that was uh, it's a real mishmash of articles that I've put in there. Yeah, that was a, uh, it's a, one of the trains. You know, we've got a lot of trouble with the trains in South Africa. Mm. So that was in the kind of dying days of this very... Um, it was kind of a train, I guess the, you'd call it the old Transcaru. Um, the, the railways put on this a, a, a kind of mediocre version of the blue train. Not a mediocre, but a cheaper version of the blue train. And I guess an upmarket version of the Transcaru. And that's what I call mm. the light blue train. Because it did exactly the same route. And you got like a towel and a, a robe and little slippers and products in your room and you got a little calchette or a little whatever they call them sleeper room so yeah that was that was that story a coucher or a, a banquette there you go that's one but i mean there's a lot of trains on and for me i'm a big train fanatic and I, i'm very sad about the fact that train travel has kind of really gone the way of most things here in south africa which is terribly sad um, that it's so difficult to do it. I used to love going on premier class. I'm guessing that the light blue train was just like a step up from premier class, yeah? No, that was it. That's what it was, premier class. Mm. And I, I miss that. I miss that traveling. But I mean, you, you've traveled a lot and you've done, I mean, what was Waiting for the Diamond Seas about? Is that like uh, with the diamond divers off um, the West Coast? Ah, that was, a, that was an article I did for Esquire in England. Yeah, so that was the Port Nolith guys. I did another story about diamond uh, diamond diggers in West Africa who uh, I was kind of confused with that. They <laughs> down and find diamonds in old in old uh, discarded mines, very much like the Zamazamas in South Africa. Yes. Okay. Now, when when you went to Ponte, this is another thing because I've I've done a lot of work with Ponte on when they've had Mandela Day. And going and helping them do the clean up there. So, did you do the story at Ponty before or after they had cleaned up? Oh no, it was it was way after, way after. Now I okay. don't think I wouldn't I wouldn't have gone in during that time. I actually saw that they have another run coming up. Uh, if anybody is interested in that, they do a run up Ponty. Um, they do it, I think, once a month. Mm-hmm. So you run from the core of the building up to the top, uh, which is fifty. I think it's it's probably more than fifty five floors. And um, then you have a breakfast at the end. Okay, so, um, um, I think I'll give that one a miss. <laughs> people are still people are still asking if they can go to Ponty, and uh, you know they don't realize that it was it's being fixed up for quite a few years now. Yeah, no, they've they've done an amazing job there of actually sorting it out because beforehand it was just absolutely appalling. It was like really bad. Okay, so I mean you've written stories about places, I mean America, about uh, in the Seychelles, England, South Africa. Where has been your favorite story 
And I know it sounds like a weird question, where has been. Which country, what was it about? That's why it has to be, where was it? I don't know, probably West Africa, I think. I went, I did a book that was never published about a trip I took in West Africa in the 1990s with a a South African woman who had been living in Ivory Coast for quite a few years and raised her family there. And uh, every few years she took what she called a bush trip through West Africa and she invited somebody to go with her. And basically it was just taking back roads through West Africa. And for me it was fascinating because for one, I'd done this kind of aborted trip through Africa and written a book about it, but that was all through the English speaking countries. And for me, West Africa was just this mm. zone that I knew nothing about. I mean, it's so different from, from the Africa we know. I mean, South Africans mostly go to, you know, Mozambique, to Kenya, to Zambia, Zimbabwe. Um, but very few people, actually very few people in general go to West Africa. And so for me, it was just this amazing thing. And she's a very, she's a very engaging person. So it was kind of like a travels with my aunt traveling with this very eccentric woman older than you who has a very particular way of seeing the world Mm. and going through a very interesting area. So we went from Ivory Coast to Ghana to Togo to Benin to Niger, back through Burkina Faso, down to back to uh, Ivory Coast. So it was Mm. kind of a round trip. Um, and then we did a couple of excursions as well for conservation reasons because she was working on some projects with uh, manatees, which are like, um, what do they call them, sea, sea cows? Yes, the sea cows. Yeah. Do you know what a manatee looks like? Yes. Yeah, the ones, I mean, it's the ones that they used to think were mermaids. Yeah. And also <laughs> How they managed to get that one right, I don't know, but anyway. <laughs> they said that the, the sailors had been out at sea so long they couldn't figure, they couldn't like distinguish. So, um, <laughs> So, and then, uh, so we would, we did a couple of conservation trips, which is, I mean, conservation in West Africa is very different from East and Central and Southern mm-hmm. Africa. I mean, there's basically there from no animals left at all. I mean, really, you hardly saw a bird, nothing. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of quite tragic. So it was, but you know, it's a very, it's a very interesting area. It's very French. The French have a very different way of doing things. The people are very different. The light, the air, the architecture, the layout of the cities, it's all it's completely different. So I um, yeah, I wrote this book and uh, I kind of found it fascinating, the whole area. Mm. Well, that's amazing. I mean, as I said, it's like a whole bunch of different stuff. So how many books have you got in all six? Don't know. I forgot. I haven't. Really been <laughs> I don't I know. Did, uh, However many. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I did a. I did a. I did a I, like a privately written biography of a of a financier, J.P. Morgan, in America that I was commissioned to do. I've written a novel that was self published on Amazon. Um, so I guess I don't know seven published in all. I guess. Yeah. And then a couple more not published. <laughs> Those ones that you've got sitting on the back burner. Are they going to see the light of day? What do you have in the pipeline at the moment? So I've just finished a book about a chap called I.W. Schlesinger, who um, was came out to South Africa in the late uh, 1800s. And in 1915, he, he'd made, by 1915, he'd made a lot of money in Johannesburg and South Africa. And he started to create his own Hollywood in Africa in Johannesburg. And as preposterous as this sounds, it really was 
like Hollywood. Mm. I mean, he spent as much money on movies. He made them as big as Hollywood. He brought out directors and actors and producers and writers and um, scenario people. And he built a studio where the Killarney Mall is today is where his studio was. And that whole area around Killarney, the golf course, all of that stretching across to Houghton, the wilds, that was all his domain. Mm. And... He went at it for about seven years. So he made the first King Solomon's Mines. He made the first Blue Lagoon, if you can believe it or not, back in 1923. I mean, everyone thinks the first Blue Lagoon was Brooke Shields. Yes, uh, absolutely. Back in the 80s. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was actually made by him in Johannesburg and Durban and Mozambique mm. in uh, 1923, which is, you know, one thinks about it was actually quite amazing. You know, movies to us today are... You know, we expect them to be huge and expensive and like razzmatazz and everything. And this was at the beginning of Hollywood. He was doing these things in Africa. I mean, when you think about like the dynamics of it, it's it's just astounding. Well, for anybody you know, who works guy. in the industry, we all know that, I mean, Holly Felt was actually around long before Hollywood came into being, surprisingly enough. Well, I'm going to have to correct you on that. Though. No, I disagree. It's always been like, I know that all these myths about Johannesburg, okay, that it's uh, the largest urban forest in the world, man-made urban forest, and that it's the only big city that's not on the sea or a block of water. I'm keeping this one, that Holly Felt is older than Hollywood. Don't take away my dreams, okay? <laughs> Leaving it like that. I must tell you, though, the interesting thing, though, is that the industry that came afterwards actually all started with him. I mean, so mm -hmm. he started... He actually started the SABC, so he there were a bunch of fledgling little radio stations around Joburg. Uh, there was one in Joburg, one in Cape Town, one in Durban, I think. He They were all not making money, and he bought them in, I think, 1920, about 1927. And then he made them into the Africa Broadcasting Corporation. And then, I think, in the 1930s, he sold them to the government. Mm. So he was that. He was, I mean, he, he started so many things in South Africa that... One doesn't even know about, but he's a very low profile guy. He didn't like publicity. So the fact that he did any of the things he did, plus this Hollywood in Africa is still unknown. So mm. when the book comes out, you can read I will find out about it. Yes. I, yeah. I, but don't shatter my illusions. Okay. Holly Fault is one of my <laughs> favorite things. Okay. So there's that book. And what, what about the other ones that you have written and not yet published? Are they being worked on? Or are they ones that you're just going to dump? How does the I process work? I have another book. I have another book that, um, is doing the rounds with publishers at the moment on Daisy Demelka and the era of murders in Joburg. People think that Joburg crime is something new, and it actually is as old as Joburg. Um, it was back in the early days, it was known as the University of Crime, amongst other things. I mean, it was it had a lot of good names and a lot of bad names. It was the Miracle City, the Sunshine City, the University of Crime, Judasburg. Uh, so it had a lot of names, and I don't know, I find that very fascinating, and that era of like the 1920s when there were so many rich characters in the city and one of them was Daisy Demelka, who, if people don't know, was the, uh, who killed apparently a number of people, even though she was only found guilty of killing one person, which mm -hmm. was her son, who she poisoned. And for that alone, she got the death penalty. But I mean, it was also suspected that she had murdered two of her husbands the same way 
And then she also had four other children that died very, very early on, and they never really had a, a proper diagnosis. It was just called convulsions, which was very common at the time because they didn't know what, you know, uh, what it was. And mm. It was probably poison in her case. And then there was at the time of her trial in Joburg, which went on for a month, there were some Rhodesian guards waiting at the exit to arrest her if she was set free because they wanted to arrest her for the murder of an uncle and a fiancé and somebody else in Rhodesia at the time. So she had a good, uh, I think she had a good 10 people that uh, demised because of her. Mm. Um, and so the book that I've written is basically about the time that Daisy was doing her killings in Joburg and quite a few other murders that happened at the same time. There were some really, really interesting murder sprees like uh, the Foster Gang. Do you remember the Foster Gang? Yes. So the Foster Gang was... They hung out, they, a, they hid out somewhere in Kensington in a cave. That's it. They, hid, yeah. out, they yeah. hid out in the Kensington gay caves and they all killed themselves. Uh, mm. in, you know, when they were surrounded by the police and sharpshooters and thousands of members of the public who came out to see them, like they were standing in the felt there waiting to see what was going to happen to the Foster Gang. It was like a movie, but in real. And um, then they the, kind of Foster's wife and two of the other gang members were left behind in the cave and they all killed themselves. And then there's, uh, there were a couple of other murders that were very, very interesting. There was a, there was a Jewish smos who was killed by his Afrikaans lover and um, she thought he was going to swindle her out of her farm. And so she murdered him and hid his body next to the kitchen. And she wasn't found for about three years. And so there's that one. So there's a couple more murders, murders like that, which I found really interesting, interspersed between telling Daisy's story and Joburg as a murder center. Some, some dark material there, hey? Yeah, I know. It's actually very interesting. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, they're all very creative, too. Creative things, yes, yes. Creative yeah. people, let's ne- just not get caught, <laughs> I suppose, mm. is the best way to go. All right, so if people want to find your books, where is the best place? I mean, are, are they in exclusives, um, good book dealers online? Where can people find your books if they're interested in any of them? I mean, as I said, it's such a diverse body of work that I'm sure that somebody, everybody will find something that speaks to them in one of the books. Well, the one also that I should mention is Flat White, which is the one about my building in New York. So I was lucky enough to be able to find a, a flat to buy in New York, but it was, uh, I mean, people will see in the book how much I paid for the flat, which was kind of ridiculous. I mean, it was really ridiculous. And and then, and of course, you went and furnished it with all the other people's off I did, I did. Yes. I furnished it with all the stuff. <laughs> And I, I, it was a bad building. It was kind of a drug building. Drug dealers lived there. They sold mm. from there. There was a prostitute. It was like graffiti and garbage everywhere. It was not a nice area to live in. It was in Harlem. And um, the day that I bought, I was made the president of the body corporate. And for the next eight years, I kind of lived this very uh, difficult life trying to make the building livable. Mm. And I did that. I mean, I got death threats and uh, my life was very, very challenging for a long time. Um, and I learned a lot about the human condition. And so that I, you know, I've, I always wanted to write a book about it, but only like when I'd kind of come out of the presidency and the building was actually quite fine by then. Yeah. And I achieved my aim. Then I thought, okay, now's the time to write the book. So 
I wrote that, and uh, that one's called Flat White. Um, the strange case of a new immigrant in an old building and things going badly. <laughs> You've had quite a life, Ted. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so <laughs> that one. So most of them, most of them, you can you can find on Amazon or Take a Lot. Mm. And Expat Confessions. There is a very uh, dedicated shop in Colt Bay called Art Fark, which stocks my two South African books, which are Flat White and or South African published books called Flat White and Expat Confessions. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to get a whole bunch of them and start reading because I need to get my my Africana, as we like to call it. <laughs> I, I collect all the books of people who are South African authors because I just find that it's one of those things, especially people who are journalists and who have written books. It's one of my, my favorite collections, to be honest. Ted Boerta, thank you so very much. And uh, please keep us updated with what else you're going to be having coming up in the future so we can have a chat about those too. Thanks, Melanie. All right. And for the rest of you, please get out there, support our local writers and our really awesome authors and people who bring us so much joy with their words and tell the stories that we don't know about, finding their voice through their writing. We'll catch you again. Bye-bye. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.